Good afternoon. I'm Jameson Kuman, a junior from Whitensville, Massachusetts, studying biology and public health. And I would like to welcome you to the January series 2018. I would also like to give a special welcome today to the guests at four of our 52 remote webcast sites. Brand new site, South Bend, Indiana, Linden, Washington, Hastings, Michigan, and my hometown, Whitensville, Massachusetts. And now, if you'll please pray with me. Dear Lord, we live in a beautiful and broken world. We are your beautiful and broken servants. Give us your vision of a restored world. Help us be stewards, pursue justice, and empower others. Help us think past our own individual experiences to consider system inefficiencies and injustices. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity to hear Dr. David Williams speak today. Give us a greater understanding of your world through him. With all praise due to you, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And now, Michelle Lloyd-Page, Executive Associate to the President for Diversity and Inclusion at Calvin, will introduce our guest. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Williams. He is the Norman Professor of Public Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a professor of African and African American Studies and Sociology at Harvard University. In addition to being a teacher who challenges his students to think deeply and to act justly, he is an internationally recognized scholar whose groundbreaking work on the social influences on health has taken him around the world and contributed to his recognitions as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. His research has enhanced our understanding of the complex ways in which socioeconomic status, race, stress, racism, health behavior, and religious involvement can impact our health. Calvin College is grateful to John and Mary Lokes for the underwriting of today's presentation. Immediately after this presentation, Dr. Williams will be available to greet people in the West Lobby of the Covenant Fine Arts Center. Please join me in welcoming fellow sociologist, Dr. David Williams. Thank you very much, Michelle. And it's truly an honor and privilege to be here with you at Calvin College. I've been aware of Calvin College, having lived more than 20 years in the state of Michigan. Uh, but this is my first time visiting you. Um, I honestly want to say I have profound respect and admiration uh, for the work that you do and for what you represent, because I am too am a product of Christian education and a strong and firm believer in the value of Christian education and that the need for Christian education is never greater, has never been greater than it is today. Uh, I'll jump right into my talk, um, but with thanks to all at Calvin College who have um, made my visit here a very pleasant one and have gone the extra mile to make sure that I'm doing well. My talk today on natural causes is inequality making us sick. I, I will say from the outset, I'm going to make the slides available. I have a lot of slides I'm going to cover, and some of them you may not have a chance to read everything that's on the slide, um, but I'll make them available um, afterwards so that you can take time to digest everything that I have said. So unnatural causes is inequality making us sick. What are the health challenges that we face in the United States? Um, one of the biggest health challenges we face is that as Americans, we are not the healthiest people in the world. Um, we should be given our expenditure on medical care. According to the World Bank, half of the money spent on medical care annually in the world is spent in the United States. We are less than 5% of the world's population, consume one half of its medical resources, but rank near the bottom of the industrialized world on health, and we are losing ground over time. So in 2014, America ranked 35th in the world on life expectancy. We're doing more poorly than countries like South Korea, Greece, Cyprus, Cuba, and Lebanon that have longer life expectancy than the United States. 
And it's not just that the minorities were doing badly. If white America were a country in 2014, it would rank 34th in the world on life expectancy. If black America were a country, it would rank 96th in the world on life expectancy. So I'm going to talk about large racial, socioeconomic, and geographic disparities in health, but I think we need to begin with the fundamental understanding that all of us could be doing better in terms of health. Uh, and that we need to think of strategies that will improve the health of all, even while we give those who have a longer journey to go an extra hand. One of the drivers of inequalities in our society, I'm a sociologist, is socioeconomic status. We know that socioeconomic status, captured by income, education, occupational status, is a predictor of virtually every desirable resource in society. So let me give you an example of one, the SAT test the scholastic aptitude test that some are calling the student affluence test because of the strong relationship between SAT scores and household income. Here is national data for the United States. Um, looking at SAT scores in 2014, and you see this graded dose-response relationship with every higher level of household income associated with SAT scores. That raises profound implications for what the test captures and how we should use it, given this, this powerful relationship that exposure uh, to, to context and economic resources is a driver of scores on the SAT test. Well, what's true on the SAT test is also true for health in the United States and in virtually every other country in the world, that one of the strongest drivers of health is socioeconomic status. So here is national data uh, from the United States from a study that I was involved with some time ago, looking at the relative risk of all-cause mortality by household income. And what you can see is that low-income Americans um, have an overall level of mortality that is three times that of high-income Americans. And you can see this graded relationship that every higher level of income is associated with a lower risk of overall death. That in and of itself would lead us to expect large racial ethnic inequities um, in the US um, in health because there are large racial ethnic inequities in socioeconomic status uh, in the US. And not surprisingly, there are large racial gaps in health. Here is one example of that. This is a national data for the United States looking at infant mortality. Infant mortality refers to the risk of a baby dying before its first birthday. Um, and this is the number uh, of deaths um, per 1,000 live births. And you see for whites, it's 5, and for African Americans, it's 11.2. So it's twice as high. You can also see markedly elevated risk uh, uh, for Native Americans. For Hispanics and Asians, uh, the pattern is, is quite complex. Um, because immigrants of all racial groups, um, if you look at readily available infant mortality data or overall mortality data, immigrants of all racial groups have better health than their native-born counterparts. White immigrants have better health than whites born in the U.S. Black immigrants have better health than blacks born in the U.S. Asian immigrants have better health than Asians born in the U.S. Latino immigrants have better health than Latinos born in the U.S. So across the board, we have a healthy immigrant effect. That's the good news. The bad news is the longer immigrants stay in the U.S., the worse their health becomes. And that pattern is well documented, particularly for Latino immigrants. It's as if the data is saying there's something about the American way of life that is dangerous to your health. <laughs> but the phenomenon of racial differences in health is not just a US phenomenon. In what I would call all race-conscious societies, we find a similar pattern of disadvantaged, stigmatized, marginalized racial ethnic populations doing more poorly in terms of health. In the interest of time, I'm only going to pick one example. If you sat in my class last semester, you would see data for tw 10 countries. But here's infant mortality data for, by ethnicity for England and Wales in 2011. And here you can see the rate for the white British. Uh, the white other are white immigrants to the UK, and you can see they're slightly better than the native-born. Um, and this is blacks from Africa, blacks from the Caribbean, Pakistani, Indians, and Bangladeshi. So again, you see the most disadvantaged racial groups also doing more poorly uh, in terms of health. When my career started, most researchers believe that the racial differences in health were simply a function of racial differences in income and education. 
we now know that life is more complicated than that. And to illustrate that, I'm going to show you national data for the United States, life expectancy at age 25. So at age 25, how long, on average, would the average person live? And you can see, at age 25, the average white person will live five years longer than the average African-American. That's a five-year gap in life expectancy at age 25. But if we look within the white population, by education, college-educated whites live 6.4 years longer than whites who have not finished high school. Importantly, the socioeconomic gap within the white population is bigger than the black-white gap. And the same is true if we look within African-Americans. There's a 5.3-year gap between those who have finished uh, college and those who have not completed high school. Again, bigger than the five-year gap. So it's really important that these socioeconomic gaps, which we don't pay much attention to, are really powerful, powerful predictors of variations in health. At the same time, at every level of education, there still is a racial gap. So white high school dropouts live 3.1 years longer than black high school dropouts, and the difference is even larger among the college-educated where we can find a 4.2-year difference. And what you can see here is that college-educated African-Americans, the best of African-Americans, 4.2 years longer than college-educated whites, but they also have lower life expectancy than whites who have some college and even than whites who have completed high school. So this profoundly says, and this is national data for the U.S., that there's something powerful about income and education. The income data is similar. I'm not going to show it to you in the interest of time. But there's something powerful about income and education that drives health. But there's something else about race that matters profoundly for health. And over the last 20 years, I have been asked the question, why does race still matter so profoundly for health? And could racism be a critical missing piece to the puzzle to understand the patterning of racial disparities in health? So what do I mean by racism? I think of racism as a core aspect of society. It's not about individual beliefs and behavior primarily, but it's a system, um, an organized system, premised on the categorization and ranking of social groups into races that devalues, disempowers, and differentially allocates desirable resources to racial groups. So the ideology of inferiority is key, but then the racism can lead to the development of negative attitudes and beliefs, which we call prejudice and stereotypes, and it can also lead to differential treatment by individuals or institutions, which we call discrimination. But I see racism as part of this fundamental um, system of society, and it interacts with our political, legal, economic, religious, cultural uh, systems, and they both, the arrow goes both ways, they both shape and reshape each other to affect outcomes in society. So let me first of all talk about the difference between individual and institutional discrimination, because both are important, but institutional discrimination, which we tend not to see, is even much more powerful and important than individual discrimination. So let me give an example of individual discrimination. Researchers at Portland State University ask a simple question. When a black person and a white person stands at a crosswalk in the city of Portland, intending to cross the street, does your race determine how long you have to wait to cross the street? And they took three black males and three white males, dressed them similarly, and put them at different intersections in Portland, uh, with this demonstrating the same intention to cross the street. And they found that multiple cars were twice as likely to pass a black pedestrian waiting to cross the street, and that on average, blacks had to wait 32% longer to cross the street. That's individual discrimination. We're talking about what an individual driver did as he saw a pedestrian waiting to cross the street. But let's talk about institutional discrimination that is quite pervasive. Here's an example also linked to waiting. In the 2012 presidential election, this is national data for the United States, on average, African Americans waited in line 23 minutes to vote, compared to whites waited in line 12 minutes to vote. So there's systematic differences in how long people waited to vote based on their race, but none of that reflected the behavior of individual precinct workers. Instead, it reflected a range of institutional processes linked to budgeting, 
space allocations, local administrative procedures, uh, how many precincts existed to serve a particular population, what was the staffing of various precincts, so there are procedural institutional mechanisms, but that nonetheless led to dramatic differences in outcomes. And so I want to talk to you about a secret source that drives racial inequality in the United States, an institutional mechanism of racism that most of us never even think about, but it has powerful, pervasive effects on health, but on a broad range of outcomes. And I'm talking about residential segregation. It's a striking legacy of racism, and I would include in that um, the forced removal and relocation of indigenous peoples. It has institutionalized the marginalization and isolation of populations. Um, segregation refers to the physical separation of races. It is as American as apple pie. It was imposed by legislation, supported by major economic institutions, enshrined in the housing policies of the federal government, uh, enforced by the judicial system and vigilant neighborhood organizations, and it was supported by larger cultural ideology by the church and other institutions in society. Um, John Sell, as a historian at Duke University, he wrote a book about the origins of segregation in the U.S. South and South Africa. He showed that the framers of apartheid in South Africa early in the 20th century looked across the Atlantic and they saw the segregation we had implemented in the United States and they said, brilliant, we can do that in South Africa. Importantly, John Sell argued that residential segregation in the United States is one of the single most successful domestic policies of the 20th century because it's beneath the radar screen, but it has pervasive negative effects on health. And you said, what does segregation have to do with anything? Well, stop and think for a minute. Where we live in the United States determines where you go to school and the quality of education you receive. It determines access to job opportunities. It determines the quality of housing and neighborhood environments. It determines whether it's easy to live a healthy life in your, in your neighborhood. It determines environmental exposure. It determines access to medical care. It determines the quality of, of city services. It determines a broad range of outcomes. How powerful is this? William Julius Wilson and Robert Sampson um, are two of America's most eminent sociologists. They studied 171 larger cities in the United States and said there's not even one city where whites live in, under equal conditions to those of blacks. And they ended with this striking quote, the worst urban context in which whites reside is considerably better than the average context of black communities because segregation has produced distinctively different environments. And in fact, segregation is responsible for the large racial ethnic differences in SES. You want empirical support for that? I go to David Cutler. Uh, he, until recently, was a dean of the social sciences at Harvard University. He's one of America's leading economists, using fancy econometric models I cannot even fully describe. He is able, using national data for the United States, to show that if you could statistically eliminate segregation, you would completely erase black-white differences in income, education, and unemployment, and reduce black-white differences in single motherhoods by two-thirds. All of that is linked to place and the opportunities driven by location in particular places in the United States. How big are these inequalities? Here is national data from the U.S. Census Bureau in 2015 of racial differences in income. I have just translated it into a way that you can't possibly miss the point. So I'm standardizing on a dollar of income of whites. For every dollar of income white households receive, Asian households receive a dollar and 23 cents. Two points about that. 70% of Asians in the, in the United States are immigrants. It's a group most with the highest proportion of, of immigrants, number one, and two, Asian households have more persons contributing to household income. So if we did a per capita or per person measure of income, whites would have the highest per person measure of income. But if we look at historically disadvantaged populations, for every dollar of household income whites receive, Latinos receive 72 cents, Native Americans 62 cents, and African Americans 59 cents. Do you know what is stunning about a 59 cents figure? that is identical to the racial gap in income in 1978. I didn't misspeak, you heard me correctly. 
1978, the peak year of the gains of the civil rights movement and the anti-poverty policies of the 60s and 70s, blacks narrowed the income gap to 59 cents. And I'm saying to you in 2015, that's exactly where the income gap was. Most of my students think we have made much more progress than that. And as bad as these data are, they don't tell the true story of racial differences in economic resources. Because income captures the flow of resources into the household, it tells us nothing about the economic reserves that households have to cushion shortfalls of income. We get that data from wealth. And the latest wealth data from a Census Bureau report, for every dollar of wealth that white households have, Black households have six pennies, and Latino households have seven pennies. By the way, research shows there are no racial differences in savings behavior at equivalent levels of income. So the racial gaps in wealth do not reflect differential levels of savings. The important reflect uh, differences in access to housing, and housing gains over time uh, are more, much more powerfully uh, differences in what the fancy academic term is intergenerational transfers of wealth which means whites are much more likely to inherit wealth when relatives die, where blacks and Latinos have to struggle to pay the funeral expenses, is, is what happens. So the important point here is that there are large racial differences in income, education, and so forth in the United States. They are consequential for life. They are not random events. They're not acts of God. They didn't just come out of nowhere. They reflect the successful implementation of social policies and residential segregation and institutional mechanism of racism has produced a truly rigged system in the United States. In addition to institutional racism through residential segregation, there is individual discrimination. We saw the example of the racial differences in intending to cross the street. There's high quality scientific research that documents discrimination that is pervasive across a broad range of domains of life. And most of this evidence comes from studies that use persons, everything identical, and the only thing you vary is race, and it documents pervasive discrimination across a broad range of life domains. I have been particularly interested in the subjective experience of discrimination. Some of the exposure to discrimination that individuals receive, they are aware of. And the question for me has been, when someone recognizes they've been treated unfairly, does that have negative consequences? Is it a type of stressful life experience, like other types of stressful life experiences that I have studied? And so I've developed uh, multiple scales to capture exposure to discrimination. One of them is called the Everyday Discrimination Scale. It captures minor day-to-day -day indignities and incivilities. You are treated with less courtesy than others, treated with less respect, receive poorer service than others at restaurants or stores, People act as if they think you are not smart or as if they think uh, you are dishonest uh, or if they think they are better than you are. Nine items. And just to illustrate the power of discrimination and, and just this scale, I'm going to show you research done by Dr. Tanny Lewis, who was at Yale University at the time of this work. Each line in the study represents a different scientific paper published by Dr. Lewis in all of these studies, looking at everyday discrimination as the exposure and looking at a, a range of other health outcomes, statistically adjusting for other potential confounding factors. Higher levels of everyday discrimination predicts higher levels of coronary artery calcification. That's a subclinical measure of heart disease of people followed over five years. It predicts higher levels of inflammation. Higher inflammation puts you at risk for a broad range of health conditions. Predicts higher levels of blood pressure. Pregnant women who report everyday discrimination actually give birth to lower birth weight infants. A study of the elderly followed over time, those who report higher levels of everyday discrimination manifest more rapid declines in cognitive function over time. Time. A community study, high levels of everyday discrimination, predicts poorer sleep. A study of adults followed over time, everyday discrimination is an independent predictor of premature mortality. It's literally killing people. And a study of black and white women um, uh, looking at uh, using uh, imaging data to separate visceral fat from subcutaneous fat. Those are two types of abdominal fat. Uh, uh, subcutaneous fat is the fat just under your skin, and visceral fat 
fat is the deep internal fat in between your body organs. Why is that important? It's the visceral fat that's the bad kind of fat that predicts increased risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes and so on. And what she found, higher levels of everyday discrimination predicts higher levels of visceral fat. So just to give you a range of the broad range of negative effects that research documents on discrimination. Let me talk about one other study of discrimination just to give you a sense. Jean Brody in, in Georgia has been studying uh, African-American teens, and he assessed the discrimination they experienced as teenagers aged 16, 17, and 18. And now at age 20, he has examined the relationship between exposure to discrimination as a teenager and the level of biological function, and he calls it allostatic load, at age 20. And what he finds, that those teens who reported high levels of discrimination as teenagers at age 20, not age 40, not age 60, but at 20, we see biological dis dysregulation, higher levels of cortisol, of epinephrine, of norepinephrine, all of these are stress hormones that are assessed. We're not telling you about how the kids reported. This is looking at their biological function in high levels of systolic and diastolic blood pressure and CRP and body mass index. So the effects of discrimination, negative effects on health, are evident very early in life. And then there's, as I've talked about segregation and institutional mechanism, but about individual discrimination. And then there's discrimination that is deeply embedded in our culture. It, the, the larger negative stereotypes that lead to implicit biases and stigma that exists in our culture. There's a lot of evidence of, of pervasive negative stereotypes, and the question is, where do these stereotypes come from? A group of scientists have created a database of American culture. They've put in this database about 10 million words, the books, magazines, newspaper articles that an average college-educated American would read over their lifetime. What is beautiful about this is if you've put American culture into a database, you can now say, when the word black appears in American culture, what adjectives tend to co-occur with it? Well, most frequently poor, then violent, then religious, then lazy, then cheerful, then dangerous. When white occurs, wealthy, progressive, conventional, stubborn, successful, educated. For the fun of it, when female occurs, distant, warm, gentle, passive. Male, dominant, leader, logical, strong. Here are the 10 most common stereotypes associated in this database of American culture for blacks, and I've highlighted the, the negative ones. You can see some negative ones for whites. There, there is a measure of associative strength is the number. The closer it is to one, the, the stronger uh, the association is, the more closely tied those, those words are. So you see the predominance of violent, lazy, dangerous. Folks, this has profound effect for some issues we've been struggling with as a nation. It means that when a police officer sees a young black male and assumes he's more violent and dangerous than he is and overreacts, we are not necessarily dealing with a bad cop. We may be simply looking at a normal American who is reflecting what is deeply embedded in his subconscious based on being raised in this society. Because we have overwhelming scientific evidence that these negative stereotypes drive behavior and trigger racial discrimination. Let me give you one example linked to health. Back in 1999, a researcher by the name of Kevin Schulman went to a scientific conference and had about 800 physicians watch videotapes of patients. The patients were all actors. They described exactly the same behavior, the same symptoms, all claimed to live in the same place. But systematically, there were differences by gender and race in the treatment provided to the physicians. And Congress voted in 1999 to ask the National Academy of Medicine, then called the Institute of Medicine, to do a study. Did what happened at a scientific conference with fake patients actually happen when Americans go into healthcare context in the United States? I served on the Institute of Medicine uh, on Equal Treatment Report Committee, which is the book that was produced, published in 2003. And looking at all the scientific evidence, there were nearly 200 published scientific papers on them, and in 80% of them, we found 
that across virtually every therapeutic intervention, from the most complex medical procedure to the most simple, and a simple one would be a patient in the emergency room with a mild TIA, a mild stroke, does the patient get aspirin or not? Blacks and Latinos less likely to get aspirin. Minorities get poorer quality care than whites did. To give you a concrete example, here is one. Dr. Todd was an emergency room physician at UCLA Medical Center. He asked a simple question. When a patient comes to the UCLA emergency department with a long bone fracture, that's medical speak for a broken bone in the arm or legs, does the patient's ethnicity determine whether the patient gets pain medication? And Dr. Todd looked at everyone treated at a UCLA emergency room in the prior year, and he found that 55% of Latino patients had not received pain medication compared to 26% of non-Hispanic whites. These are patients with a long bone fracture, broken bone in the arm or legs. Dr. Todd was a good researcher, so he said confound, and he says it's something else. So statistically, he adjusted for whether the patient spoke English or not, whether they got injured on the job or not, whether they had insurance or not, what time they showed up at the ER, how long they spent in the ER, how severe was the fracture. And Dr. Todd found that after you statistically adjusted for all these other factors, the single biggest predictor of whether a patient got pain medication was the patient was Latino. And Dr. Todd moved from UCLA to Emory University in Atlanta and repeated the same study in Atlanta, three emergency departments, looking at black and white patients, and he found exactly the same thing. A black patient with a broken bone in the arm or leg in Atlanta goes to the emergency room, is less likely to get pain medication than a white patient. Don't focus on pain medication. This is documented in every area of medicine with more studies in the area of the treatment of cardiovascular disease. How is it possible that well-meaning, highly educated health professionals who have received the best training and who go to work each day intending to do their best for all of their patients can create a pattern of care that appears to be so discriminatory? Our conclusion at the time of the Institute of Medicine report, and we now have considerable additional evidence, is that the phenomenon is what we call unconscious on thinking discrimination or implicit bias. And it's about how, it's not about white people, it's not about Americans, it's about how human beings process information. We all process information by putting things into categories. And what the research finds is that if you have a category that based on your socialization, you have negative beliefs, stereotypes about, my next two words are important, you meet someone from that category, it's an automatic process, you'll do it without thinking. It's an unconscious process, you're not even aware of it. You will treat that person differently. It doesn't matter whether you're prejudiced or not. What matters is what resides in your mind based on your socialization. I usually tell my students I am a prejudiced person. I am a prejudiced person because I like to think of myself as a normal human being. And if you are a normal human being, you are probably prejudiced. I am not saying you are racially prejudiced because race is not the only outgroup. If you have negative stereotypes about fat people, about gay people, about old people, about women, these are generic processes that occur across human populations. And research in the United States says in one-third of the time it takes to blink your eye, you quickly notice someone when you meet them and pay attention to their race, their gender, and their age, and what are the stereotypes embedded there will shape how you respond to that individual. The good news is, I like to tell people, there is the divine solution. Uh, Professor Patricia Devine at the University of Wisconsin <laughs> has shown that it's possible to take individuals who are motivated and to teach them a number of strategies that can enable them to overcome this natural Norman tendency. One of the strategies I'll tell you about in the interest of time is called individuation. All of us process the complex cognitive information we face every day by putting things into categories. Individuation says we will resist that temptation 
to put people into categories and try to focus on the individual characteristics of the person in front of you and try to understand that person as an individual. It's possible, but it takes time, it takes motivation, it takes awareness. If you say, I would never do this, you are perfectly set up to do it. One other mechanism of racism that I will not talk about in, uh, is internalized racism, and it has to do with the extent to which individuals buy into the negative stereotypes or, or disadvantaged populations buy into and accept as true the negative stereotypes about them. There's a body of research documents that high levels of internalized racism among minorities also leads uh, to poor health. The point I am making, though, you can think of individual discrimination, institutional discrimination, the discrimination in a culture, all producing inequalities in a broad range of domains. There is responses that individuals make, but these inequalities then reinforce the stereotypes. And because you see the blacks are doing more poorly in education or, or employment, then it reinforces the negative stereotypes that exist. And these stereotypes right, go back and reinforce the system of racism and larger societal institutions in the first place. What can we do to improve America's health? Well, there's good evidence that if we start early, we can have a big impact. One example is a study done in North Carolina, Chapel Hill, called the Abyssadarian Project. It takes um, poor children, 80% uh, of them African-American, and puts them in a high-quality early childhood program from birth through age five. They are in a safe, nurturing environment, getting good medical care, getting good nutrition. At age 21, the kids, they are randomized, so we have a randomized group and a control group, followed over time. Fewer symptoms of depression, lower levels of drug use, more active lifestyle, doing better educationally. By the mid-30s, marked differences in risk factors for heart disease linked to just what happened birth through age five. Here's the differences in systolic blood pressure between the, in the intervention group uh, 126 um, millimeters of mercury is their systolic pressure, and the control group is 143. But those differences exist on a broad range of other indicators in the mid-30s linked to what happened early in life. What else do we need to do? Well, we need comprehensive health approach, comprehensive approaches. What I mean by that, we cannot address these intractable problems simply by putting on a Band-Aid or trying to address only one aspect of that. And one of the programs that I have enormous admiration for is the Purpose Built Communities Program. They try to improve health and education and everything in communities by chat um, working with and seeking to improve all of the challenges that disadvantaged communities face simultaneously. And I want to take you to East Lake Atlanta. I visited East Lake Atlanta two years ago to look to see what Purpose Built was doing. And I want you to come with me to East Lake Meadows, a uh, housing project in 1995 in the, in the city of Atlanta. It was the worst housing project in Atlanta. Um, 90% of the families in that housing project were victims of a felony every year. Um, it was public housing, 40% of the units deemed unlivable. Um, low unemployment, um, uh, low employment rates, sorry, high welfare use rates, and the school there, the elementary school, was uh, only 5% of fifth graders were at uh, meeting state math standards in their performance. Come with me to East Lake Meadows today. There's been a 73% reduction in crime and a 90% reduction in violent crime. There's high-quality mixed-income housing. Um, all of the able-bodied residents are working. Um, marked increase in median income. And the school is one of the best-performing schools in the state of Georgia. It shows that it can be done. And the purpose-built model is being replicated across communities. Purpose-built communities are, uh, is committed to providing free technical assistance to any community that wants to replicate their model. What else do we need to do? We need to improve economic well-being. I, I don't have time to show you the data, but there's good scientific evidence that indicates if you can only close the income gap and the education gap, if you improve income and education, you dramatically reduce the black-white gap in health. I want to conclude by us thinking about what does this all mean 
for religious people? What role can religious individuals and organizations play? Well, scientific research indicates that religious involvement can buffer or protect individuals from some of the negative effects of the stress of discrimination on health. So there's a published paper called The Balm in Gilead that documented in the National Study of Black Americans that high levels of religious attendance and church-based social support and seeking religious guidance in life, all of those religion factors protected individuals who had experienced discrimination from the negative health effects. So we celebrate the power of, 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 of religious organizations. But religious institutions can do more. Religious institutions can raise awareness levels of the striking social inequalities I've just described that give rise to inequalities in health and multiple other domains of life. National data for the United States shows that the majority of adult Americans are unaware that the racial inequalities I just talked about today even exist. If you don't know there's a problem, you certainly will not be motivated to address it. Religious institutions can also uplift solutions and be agents of social change to help to address these problems. Religious institutions can deliberately spur um, uh, uh, and intentionally spur compassion, engender empathy, and facilitate the political will for sustained action to initiate and maintain social justice. And this is key, this is important, this is critical. W.E.B. Du Bois, a great African-American social scientist, in 1899, published a book on the Philadelphia Negro. In the book of the Philadelphia Negro, he had a chapter on Negro health. Towards the end of the chapter on Negro health, Du Bois penned these words, the most difficult social problem in the matter of Negro health is the peculiar attitude of the nation toward the well-being of the race. And Du Bois continued, there have been few other cases in the history of civilized peoples where human suffering has been viewed with such peculiar indifference. The peculiar indifference that Du Bois talked about is today studied by social scientists and is called the empathy gap. And the empathy gap refers to the fact that most white Americans have less empathy, feeling, concern for problems that are problems of minorities compared to problems that are of their own racial group. Let me give you one study to illustrate this. This is a study in which researchers got five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and ten-year-olds to watch videotapes of a black person or white person being stuck by a needle. What they found, that at age five, there is no racial bias. The five-year-olds see the black person and the white person being stuck by the needle experiencing the same amount of pain. By age seven, there is a tendency for the white kids to see the white person experiencing more pain than the black person. Same action. By age 10, it is pronounced. There is a strong, striking, stable difference in the perception of pain. And that's just one example of this lack of empathy. And there's other scientific evidence we can talk about that shows this lack of empathy drives policy. And part of the reluctance to make commitments and, and have political will for change is driven by the absence of empathy. And one of the challenges we need as a society is to identify how can we tell the story of the plight of the disadvantaged in a way that resonates, connects emotionally, and we feel it and develop empathy and feel this is unacceptable in our nation. We can't have it. There is a sad history of study of the relationship between religion and prejudice. There was a book published in the 1970s about religion and racial prejudice that was called The Bias and the Pious. And what the research found across the United States, the more religious you were, the more likely you were to be racially prejudiced. Don't stone me, I'm just reporting <laughs> the findings. In fact, it found the more orthodox your religiosity, the more you believed in the messianic birth of Jesus, the more you believe in the Bible as the word of God, the, the more frequently you attended services, the more likely you were to be prejudiced. However, the good news is, subsequent researchers went back and identified there really are two kinds of religiosity. 
They called it intrinsic and extrinsic. People who are extrinsically religion, religious, which is more people are extrinsically religious than intrinsically religious. Extrinsically religious individuals see religious in religion in a utilitarian, rules-oriented, legalistic way. Um, and they, they practice their religion. They'll go to church because they want their neighbors to know they are an upstanding and moral person in the community. As opposed to intrinsically religious people who see religious as personally meaningful and integrated into every aspect of their lives. And what they found is that extrinsic religion is associated with more prejudice, but intrinsic religion is associated with less prejudice. In fact, more recently, researchers are documenting this trend still persists in American life, and they see that what leads to the prejudice is a rigidity in thinking and an inflexible orientation. Christians who have a rigid, closed-minded worldview in which they believe that their religious beliefs are absolutely correct is predictive of higher levels of prejudice. And what seems to be important is not the content of the religious belief, but is the inflexibility within which individuals hold it. And so I raise for us the question, what does God really want of Christians? Let me tell you a story. Some time ago, I was reading a report on female criminal offenders in Michigan prisons. The report was entitled Society's Losers, and it painted a grim picture. The average age of female prisoners in Michigan was 27. Only three in 10 of them had completed high school. Over half of the women in prison had been unemployed at the time they went into prison. Over half of them were black. Nearly half of the women prisoners reported they had children for whom they were directly responsible at the time they entered prison. About 80% of the women with dependent children were neither married or had a man at home to share responsibility for child rearing. The crimes for which these women were convicted were typically not serious or violent. It was larceny, forgery, or drug offenses, seemingly expedient responses to pressure and circumstances. There was a picture with this article, a picture of a young lady sitting on a bed in a dark prison cell and gazing intently at streams of light that squeezed through the prison bars and entered her room. And as I gazed at the picture, it slowly dawned on me that I knew that young lady. I knew who she was. I actually knew her name. Her name is Jesus. For it was Jesus who said, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And Jesus presents to his disciples the scene of the great judgment day. And he indicates that eternal destiny is turning on one point. What has his professed followers done or failed to do for him in the person of the poor, the stigmatized, and the suffering? For he will say, I was hungry, and did you give me something to eat? I was thirsty, and did you give me something to drink? I was a stranger, that is, I was an immigrant, and did you invite me in? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick and in prison, and did you visit to me? Dr. Martin Luther King says, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And Desmond Tutu says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Desmond Tutu continues, that if an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> so I leave you with one of my favorite quotes, the quote from Robert F. Kennedy. He said, each time a man or woman stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or stands out, strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And those ripples can build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. It is my hope and prayer that each one of you will be a tiny ripple of hope. And together, we can work together to build a better society for all of God's children. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Williams. We have some time for questions. Uh, if you'd like to tweet them in, feel free to use the hashtag AskJSeries, or you can email them to askjseries at calvin.edu. I'm Rick Truer, and I'm the Director of Alumni and Community Relations here at Calvin College. I'll start with a question that has been emailed in from a student asking, does racism affect the perpetrator as much as it affects the victim? So it's a great question. We have not um, done a lot of scientific research on the question. There was interest on this question in the 1940s in the wake of Nazi Germany, and there was a, a psychologist interested in, in doing work even on the authoritarian personality. Was there a certain type of personality and were there negative effects? So I, I would say we haven't done a lot of work. Um, with one of my former students, I wrote a paper recently about the effects of racism on the health of whites. Um, I think what we best have as the strongest effect is good quality research by sociologists that shows that there has been a reluctance in policy circles to implement policies that would help individuals in society that were, if the policy was perceived as disproportionately helping minorities. Hmm. And those policies help everybody. And there are more poor white people in America than poor black people, for example, and more poor whites than poor Latinos. And when policies were, were not implemented because we think they will disproportionately help um, um, one group of individuals, it actually hurts all of us. Um, so I would say there's not a lot of work on the topic, but it's an important issue worth exploring. All right, thank you. Um, question from a listener. Are there examples of the divine solution training bringing measurable change in healthcare settings, corporately, not individually? So I would say no. It, within healthcare settings, there's enormous interest in cultural sensitivity and in, in cultural training, uh, but there's no, um, what I, should I say, there's, there's no consensus uh, and no clear standards of what this cultural sensitivity is, and so I think that some of the training that takes place actually does more harm than good. Um, but high-quality training, like the Divine Program, would make a difference um, in healthcare settings. I, I just think there's a lot happening within that space that is not uh, well thought through. Um, I've gotten several questions regarding church worship and the segregation of church services, and uh, wondering how going to a predominantly white church affects the halting of negative effects of discrimination that religion has for marginalized people of color. Uh, I think it was Martin Luther King who said that the most segregated hour in American life was 11 o'clock on Sunday. Um, I, I think we have good research uh, from studies that have looked at children who attend schools that are not segregated, and we find that it leads to better outcomes for the minorities, better academic and, and professional outcomes for the minorities, but for whites, it leads to greater levels of tolerance and acceptance that is evident even as adults. So it, it has enormous benefit for the society. I, I do think that one of the challenges in our society is that we need to create safe spaces that that would foster and encourage interracial uh, interaction. We're not gonna develop the empathy and that, is, that is necessary while we, we, we stay in our separate enclaves. But right now, research finds that interracial interaction in the United States is fraught with anxiety um, uh, mm -hmm. from both sides. And we, we have to, and I think the church needs to be an organization that, that takes the lead in stepping out and creating the safe spaces where we can come together and dialogue. So following up on that a little bit more, this question goes into the empathy question and asking, are there specific ways that people can work to develop greater empathy? Um, I, I think it's not, uh, there's, there's no uh, simple um, solution, at least to, to my knowledge. I mean, there may be some empathy experts out there that, that I don't know, but I, I think we do, it, part of the strategy of developing empathy is trying to put yourself in the shoes of others, trying to, to see life from their perspective, try, try to walk in their shoes and see what they are dealing with. And so again, it requires us to step out of our comfort zone and step out of our own assumptions and try to understand where others are coming from. Question regarding the communities in Georgia, the community in Georgia you mentioned, and wondering if you can describe in more detail the programs that were implemented there and how those programs work to increase health and well-being of those in the community. 
Sure. Um, I, I would encourage you to Google purpose-built communities, and you'll find um, lots of resources and descriptions online. But, but quickly, I would say the, the key to purpose-built communities, they, they destroyed, um, pulled down the, the, the housing project and built a new housing project um, that 50% that of the units are reserved for persons who lived there before, um, and 50% are at, at market rate. Um, there is what they call a cradle-to-college pipeline. High-quality um, early childhood center, high-quality education, elementary school, high school. Um, they are operating their schools and their early childhood program based on state funds, but they got um, uh, funds from private sources to build the schools and to create the field. They can operate based on the available public funds, but they need additional resources to create the kinds of environment and, and a commitment to full employment, to, to live in, in, the, in, the, in, in the, the, the new housing. You've got to commit to full employment. You don't have to be employed at the start, but again, they saturate the place with, with leads for jobs so that they, in, in fact, ensure full employment. So it's, it's a commitment to, I think, high-quality education, high-quality housing and neighborhood environment. They have built a supermarket donated space right next to the project for a major supermarket to be built. They have a Y on the property for physical fitness and activities. So it's really a, 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 a wellness kind of environment for everyone. Very comprehensive. Yes. A uh, question from a younger person wondering, is there a good way to confront elders or respected adults in our lives when they are blind to systemic racism in our society? Um, um, it, it's a great question. I, I find that many of my students sometimes, um, it's, it's a video is worth watching. Um, I, I showed it to my class this year, Why Can't We Live Together? It's a Tom Brokaw uh, video that, that shows the challenges. My, my students, black and white, cringe when they see on that video what um, white individuals were saying in this suburb of Chicago as they moved out, as blacks moved in. And the blacks moved in had higher levels of education and income than the whites who were moving out. But they just felt their neighbor was fine, but with all the blacks coming in, the neighborhood was going to be, be, be destroyed. Um, and my, my students struggle with that. So I, I do think that young people who I find to be much more open and, and much more idealistic in, in some ways need to find ways to educate their parents um, and educate older ones by getting things to help them to see themselves and understand things in a different way. I don't think it's a simple process or a quick overnight process, but I think we can gently, kindly, recognizing that everyone is a product of their culture and product of their socialization. And, and people who have certain beliefs, it's a function of how they were raised and what they were taught. And, and so there's a certain sense of, of patience and empathy we need to approach the conversation with, but we need to begin that conversation. Question regarding religious people um, and bias. Are religious people in general more prejudiced, or do Christians in particular tend to be more prejudiced? It's a good question. The studies that I have seen are studies from the United States where the majority of religious people that have been studied have been Christian. So I, that's, that's probably all I can say. So the, the research in the U.S. is really about Christians and, and that Christians are, are, are more biased than non-Christians. Um, and the, the percentage of, of other religious groups are relatively small in the U.S., especially at the time of those studies. So I don't know the answer to that. Question wondering what empathy, uh, empathy training for children looks like and do you know of any curriculum that uh, folks could find online? I am not aware, honestly, of empathy training for children or empathy programs. I, I do know that the Southern Poverty Law Center has a wonderful program that's available free to any elementary high school teacher in the United States that promotes tolerance and teaches tolerance and diversity and so on. I'm not sure how much empathy is a component of it, but that's one program I'm aware of. Uh, and finally, I have a question asking from students asking how can Kelvin students get involved or how can millennials get involved or people in general in making things better? 
So clearly, with, with the complex problems I have talked about, there are multiple ways in which we can reach out and make a difference. We can, we can make a difference. I, I spoke to a class this morning and I talked about uh, the US Dream Academy as a, a program that I've worked with, particularly that I'm a huge fan of. Um, it's a program that's trying to help the children of prisoners and children who have fallen behind in school, started by a gospel musician, Wintley Phipps, and, and is making a difference in disadvantaged communities. And one key to that program is mentors. And most mm -hmm. of the mentors that we get in the US Dream Academy are college students or church members uh, from local communities. But it's, it's an example, it's just one program, but there are examples in, in, in our communities where we can serve as mentors and as tutors and, and help students. And there's so many organizations within our communities um, that are making a difference, whether in, in, in hospitals and social service and in housing and in, in, in feeding programs that, that are making a difference. So I would say get involved, um, I, I think, you know, um, it, to be a Christian means to have your heart broken by the things that break the heart of God. Uh, and there, there's lots of hurting people in our communities, and we can become involved um, in reaching out and making a difference with organizations that are making a difference. Dr. Williams will be available in the lobby following the speech. Thank you very much for being with us today.